0: welcome to this week in surgery centers if you're in the asc industry then you're in the right place every week we'll start the episode off by sharing an interesting conversation we had with our featured guest and then we'll close the episode by recapping the latest news impacting surgery centers we're excited to share with you what we have so let's get started and see what the industry's been up to hi everyone here's what you can expect on today's episode Greg Concilius is a PA and administrator at Boston Outpatient Surgical Suites, and he's on today to share tips and insights on how to properly prepare the clinical side of the house while you're opening a new surgery center. In this fifth episode of our DeNovo series, we'll cover who your first hire should be and when, which members of the clinical team you must have in place to receive all the necessary licensing, how to prepare for quality reporting, and just other clinical considerations to keep in mind. In our news recap, we'll cover what the future holds for the outpatient surgery workforce, a decapitated young boy who was saved by his surgical team, tips for working with local authorities to create an emergency plan, and of course, end the news segment with a positive story about a groundbreaking surgery uh, that gave a woman her voice back. Hope everyone enjoys the episode and here's what's going on this week in Surgery Centers.
1: Greg, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So Greg, we are doing a series of podcasts here on the de Novo process to open a new facility and wanted to focus our conversation today on the clinical side of the operation. And so first question for you, at what point in the de Novo process should owners start to think about preparing for the clinical side of the house?
2: Sure. So I look at this in a couple of different ways. First off, if it was just owners and they had nobody else affiliated with the ASC, a group of docs out there trying to go open up a surgery center, you should have somebody who's involved again, and this isn't like a selfish plug here, but something like an administrator or something like that, who is there, who you commit the cost to, to oversee docs are, are busy being docs.
1: Yep. And if it's
2: a management company, typically the management company may handle some of these services, but let's look at their situation and, and it's good to have somebody on board a higher level person, administrator type, who has the authority to function as a CEO and make some of these everyday decisions that you're gonna need so the docs can't be bogged down with all the details. And so that that question of then who is that administrator? Who is that person? Administrators, I think we see as often clinical, like they're often nurses who have transitioned to this administrator role, but they could also just be business focused. And so with the clinical question that you asked, If they're not clinical, I think then you look at having, bringing on some kind of manager as like a nurse manager or some kind of person who has some clinical background to answer all of these clinical questions that'll pop up. And it's not just what kind of products we have to order and all that kind of stuff. It's also like, how do we set up policies and procedures? What kind of equipment or even early on airflow and different devices we may put in the room or we build in the room? that you may need to make sure it, it functions to be clinically efficient and clinically approved and all that kind of stuff. And so every situation is different. And, and the answer is simply a clinical person should be on very early because those decisions start very early on, even in design. But if somebody's listening, they've already passed design, they're at the stage of it's being built, et cetera. All those equipment decisions have to take place. They, those take a while. There's lead times on some of these things. And so I would say it, it would be worthwhile to make the investment as early as possible. And if that person can also handle higher level decisions, CEO-type decisions, that's even better.
1: Got it. So it sounds like in an ideal world, you've got an administrator or someone with some clinical experience that can help in the design and preparation stage. What about as you get closer to opening? Yeah. Um, what is the order of operations around hiring clinical staff?
2: Yeah. So then if you're close to opening, there's so many clinically applicable processes that have to take place that, again, if you're an administrator who's just been running the show the whole time, getting things going, you should bring a clinical person on ASAP. I feel, again, it's an expense, but there's going to be so much to do. Bringing on somebody at a higher level, like a manager type thing, is probably going to be easier, and they probably would have the skill set then to do some of the hiring and some of those processes, and so I think that nurse manager type person, or maybe even somebody who, if there's, you can't find a good nurse manager, or the group doesn't want to make that commitment right away, it could be somebody who, an OR nurse, or an experienced packing nurse, somebody who can actually help with some of those, again, policies and clinical decisions. So I think that's the first person. And the second person, or even one A, is probably a materials manager type person who would help with a lot of the ordering from things like, again lights and booms as, as big as that, down to bedside tables and kick buckets. And so there's a lot of things that take place. And don't forget when those things come in, they have to be put together and there's all that element. Of it. So I, I think there's on that decision-making tree, cost is probably part of it and how much to sure. spend, how much you want to spend and at what point. But my, my point is like the bang for the buck type thing. You may get somebody who's a little more experienced with a little more of a, a managerial type function in the past that, that can really help you out.
1: Sure what about licensing, which is certainly part of the de novo process and getting licensed and credentialed, does clinical background and expertise important or play into that licensing process?
2: Yeah, I think so many of those licensure and, and certification elements are clinical. There's certainly a lot of business aspects as well. And so having someone who's clinical to help, even with the application, but to prepare for those surveyors to come in. You usually have to start with these test cases and, and then you have to go through the business aspects of contracting. But if you don't go through the test cases and your facility doesn't get CMS certified and AAAC, whoever they're gonna use, you can't get those insurance contracts. And so that clinical person tees you up for that and tees you up for those test cases and the ability to actually start performing surgery. So I, I keep talking about kind of spending and bringing people in and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I think where you can cut back is that there's definitely a lag between forming those test cases, having those accreditation certifications, all that kind of stuff done, the licensure stuff. And so you don't wanna just hire all your staff, assuming that on our case, we're gonna open up eight rooms. All eight rooms are open. You get enough staff, a nurse, a tech, and again, support staff, sterilization, tax, all that kind of stuff, enough to just run one room and do those required test cases. And then you can take that lag time to then do hiring and bring in new folks. I think it's helpful. I always say that the best way to hire people is word of mouth. And so utilize your docs. And again, bring in your best person to start. Maybe a person is more of a go-getter who's going to be willing to put some extra time into, to, again, build something, put something together and that type of thing. Really, they're not shy from looking at policies and procedures and doing paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Those are your first in. And then you can start highlighting and do that second round after those test cases are done, those kind of certifications are done and then you're getting ready to open and just putting everything up well from your survey.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a good tip because it sounds like those test cases are important part of the process and the licensing process. And so, you know, staffing up for one room and then as you get closer to opening, you know, for your facility, as an example. I'm sure you didn't go day one, all eight ORs are just full go, right? Your, your case volume over time, which allows you to staff in, in phases. Yeah.
2: And use your head like, so if your nurse manager is also an OR nurse or also a pack nurse or pre-op nurse, have them be in the mix early on. At the onset, let them realize that you're going to be a manager do all these things, but early on, you're going to have to be a working manager and it's going to allow us to hold off on, on hiring that additional OR nurse, that additional pack nurse, you're going to function in that role until we have enough insurances on board, et cetera, to start opening up the volume, you know what I mean? So yeah, you a stepwise plan that is smart, is thought out well, and hopefully relies on somebody with some experience to help you formulate that. Yep,
1: yeah. yep. Yeah. Okay, great. Wanted to talk a little bit, Greg, about the quality reporting side of it. And I think that CMS currently has 20 or so quality reporting measures that you've got to report on. I think there's another one proposed for, for 2024, they'll take it to 21. What tips or best practices have you seen for new ASCs to develop infrastructure groundwork systems to start measuring and reporting on those quality measures from the beginning and take that in mind as you build out the process?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question because some things like this sometimes are on the, put in the back burner. And then again, you, you start with your processes and you're like, oh, I forgot, and I forgot about this. So I think the key piece for us has been assigning individuals to handle each quality measure that one two three five twenty whatever they are and, and how are they going to be able to collect the data and how be able they report it do they have all the resources they need to go ahead and get that going and so yeah i think if we're thinking about de novo projects putting systems in place that allow you to track this efficiently to maybe even the, the technology reports it for you whatever it is but making sure that there's accountability in reporting it and again it's as easy to do it as possible and again for us technologies help with that different systems that we use we just went to an EMR in January. And so I think again, some of the smarter systems now, the, the newer technologies are aware of these such things and help you with the data collection, et cetera.
1: Great. What about the clinical workflows as you get set up just in terms of hey, how do we treat different types of cases? Who does what? How do we get the rhythm and mojo going? Is it challenging to do that from scratch with a new facility? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: I think what I find challenging, and again, we're an existing center and have been here for 19 years, and I'm fortunate to have that experience now going forward with our new project. But there's so many different technologies out there. It's who can you work with to get the biggest bang for your buck? There's just no question that the margins in our business have to be tight because of how we're reimbursed, and so utilizing technology to streamline your processes and that type of stuff is really key. And so my thought would be. Take that time as you're ramping up in the early stages as you're filling your days with a million different things, but looking, evaluate technologies and find out the ones that can work for you best that you can implement right off the bat. And again, they're going to help you with efficiencies and costs and staffing, and all these types of things that are out there. So work smarter, not harder. Again, people say it all the time, but it's really true. There's a lot. And try and get a technology that gives you multiple offerings and biggest bang for your buck.
1: Yep. and I think sometimes facilities that are looking to implement EMRs that are established facilities and have processes in place sometimes find it a challenge to shift to a software-based system where they may have to change some process and operations. Have you found that it's potentially easier if you're starting a facility from scratch and, hey, we're going to use an EMR, or we're going to use a clinical workflow system, you can design your processes with that in mind?
2: Thousand percent. I think it's just, it's the old adage. Everyone hates change, right? And so if you do it from the onset, and I think it's an important thing to think about, and I'm happy you bought it up because it's one of those things where, again, everyone's concerned about costs. And so you're like, oh, to pay this at the onset, why don't we just open up? And then when we get a little bit of some money together and we get some good volume going, we'll transition. I just think things like, again, like EMR is a perfect example. Starting from scratch is the way to go. And I actually find that companies these days If you actually talk to them and treat them as a true partner and go over your pain points and and your hesitations they'll oftentimes will work with you everyone wants the business right and they'll probably understand that having you as an early adopter is key and so you know so many of these emr companies now have add-on features that you can do and so as i mentioned biggest bang for your buck i'd start there and see what those companies can add on and it's just a little bit of a plug for you guys but you guys have so much in your bag, right? And, and so do some of the other companies as well. And so see what's offered under one umbrella first, and then you can go on and piecemeal some of the other things. Sure. You know. sure, Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: What about working out the kinks? As you start to ramp up case volume, as you start to go from one room to two, what have you found is helpful in terms of the early days, the clinical operations in, in terms of working out the process and the kinks as you scale?
2: my biggest recommendation would be don't get stagnant and just keep going i think early meetings as much as can be painful i think there's time early on but meeting with the staff as often as possible and for us and i mentioned this in my last podcast i think one of our biggest keys to success was having monthly meetings for not only our staff but our surgeons as well that were owners in the facility could have some kind of impact and communicating everything to them it was really key not a a long meeting it was a focus meeting on certain topics. Some things can get brushed over, but some things they're involved in. And so I think same thing with the staff. As you get going, you figure out what went well this last case or this last week and what can we do better. And again, it sounds cheesy, but it's really important, I think, to make sure you're running things as smoothly as possible. And then when new folks come in, even in the hiring process, you have to let them know, listen, you're going to have to be really flexible when you come in and realize this is the way we do things. And you're going to have to adopt the way we do things. We're always open to listen to change and and to doing things better, et cetera. But you're going to have to listen to how we do things. and We have a process we go about and like, we turn over a room, we do it this way. When we admit a patient, we do it this way. Tell us how we can do it better, but this is our process and this is how we're sure. going to do it. So yeah. and we're always going to be reevaluating, but involving staff and the docs and that, I think it'll be really beneficial.
1: Yep. Makes sense. Greg, final question for you. And we do this each week with our guests. What is one thing our listeners can do this week to improve their surgery centers?
2: Yeah, I think it just goes hand in hand, what I was just talking about. I, I know for myself, it's the same thing. We know there's all this technology out there, and we know there's all these different ways we can do things using computers and iPads and streamlining processes, but I think all of us associate it with cost, and I think people just got to take the time to evaluate some of these companies, realize that they may be putting some money out front for sure, but the return on that, on efficiencies, and on, on doing things better from clinical quality, to staff satisfaction, patient satisfaction, surgeon satisfaction, the return is exponential. And so take the time to do it, don't be scared of it. And I think you'll find that there's gonna be a lot of benefits in the back end. I know we're coming to the end of the summer here and that's when people have a little extra time to do things, it's gonna get busy again in the fall. But if you can carve out some time to do some evaluations early on, I think we found that we took the plunge in a lot of these things and it's really changed the way we do things for the better.
1: Fantastic. Greg, appreciate your time. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks
2: thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks again for having me. Appreciate it.
0: As always, it has been a busy week in healthcare, so let's jump right in. Five administrators shared their predictions with Becker's ASC on what the future holds for the outpatient surgery workforce and how they see it changing in the next two to three years. So at a high level, here's what each admin shared. Les Jepsen from Prisma Health shared that ASCs have historically benefited from predictability in work hours and perceived overall quality of professional life. But with labor market strains and rising salaries due to limited labor pools, they suggest keeping an eye on employee turnover rates in frequency and doing a semi-annual market analysis on market compensation. Omar Shakar from Illinois Gastro Health suggests that we meet our employees where they are, just like we do with our patients. So previously, we could say hours are 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, but your staff might want early morning hours or evening hours. So adapting to what your limited staff wants, assuming you can accommodate it, is important to provide both routine and flexibility in order to retain the best staff. Matthew Reeder from Harris Health Outpatient Center predicts that younger individuals will be entering the perioperative arena and second-career individuals will start moving to ASCs due to attractive nursing compensation. He's also anticipating an expected rise in gender diversity and increasing demands for part-time or supplemental status. Ken Schaff from Brentwood Surgery Center says some challenges are headed this way, such as early retirements, burnout, or career shifts, which will result in increased wage demands, longer surgical uh, days, and a competitive advantage for larger ASCs or hospital systems. So ASCs will likely need to match hospital system pay scales, abandoning the previously lesser pay compensated by shorter working hours. And lastly, Andrew Weiss from Summit Surgical Center is seeing a trend in increased competitiveness in terms of salaries, benefits, and scheduling flexibility. He's also seeing that many employees now prefer part-time hours or per-dm shifts due to work-life balance. So there's definitely some trends in there that are consistent and shouldn't surprise anybody, but there's also some good reminders in there about being flexible and what you can expect to come in the next couple of years. Our second story comes from Medscape and it's wild. As a non-clinical person, I'm not gonna lie, this story did make me a little squeamish to think about, but we will get through it and it's too fascinating not to share. Suleiman Hassan is a 12-year-old boy who was riding his bicycle on the West Bank and he was involved in a car accident where he suffered life-threatening injuries. He was transported by helicopter from the scene of the accident to Hadassah Medical Center in Jerusalem, when he arrived, they realized he actually had atlanto-occipital dislocation, often referred to as internal decapitation. So when I hear decapitation. I think of terrible scenes from movies and things like that. This is not that. But when he arrived, he was in a neck brace and actually fully conscious. So they monitored and treated him and made sure he was stable. But they did quickly realize that he had a pretty severe neck injury. So his doctor was Dr. Ohad Ainav. And thankfully, once he saw the CT scan, He knew exactly what needed to be done and luckily had similar experiences during his fellowship. So he went into the surgery with plan A and also two contingency plans and only allowed the most experienced members of his team to help. Now, in the article, Dr. Inav explains the entire process in detail, so I highly recommend giving it a read. But basically, the surgery went incredibly well, and they were able to use hardware to fuse the head and the neck back together. He spent, the 12-year-old boy spent a few weeks recovering, and they were monitoring him for infections and, and any other complications, and everyone is doing great. So this could have been a really tragic story, but instead, thanks to the brilliant surgical team, this 12-year-old boy is alive and well. So uh, a lot of news stories or a lot of news stations are picking this up because you hear decapitation and you hear somebody lived. And it's just, it's fascinating to see what the doctors had to do to keep this young boy alive and that they expect him to have a great recovery. Our third story comes from ASC Focus, and they're sharing tips for working with local authorities to create an emergency plan. So this story has two angles to it. The first is letting local authorities know that if your surgery center is experiencing an emergency, here are the resources that you'll need. But the second angle is the reverse. If your community is in a state of emergency, here's how the surgery center can help. So let's tackle the first. Marcy Moon is the emergency coordinator for Union City Surgery Center in Union City, which is a small rural town in northwest Tennessee. And she shared that the center does not have access to many of the resources available in metropolitan areas, making it even more important for the ASC to collaborate with local authorities. And by sharing knowledge and experience and pooling resources, they can all be better protected and prepared for emergencies or natural disasters. Marcy did extensive outreach to various entities in her community, including the EMA director, police and fire departments, and the emergency coordinator at the local hospital. She said it's very similar to networking and they've already made recommended improvements to the ASC's plans. Now, the second scenario is how can you help? What value do you bring to your community? Anne Haddix, CEO of Southwest Surgical Suites in Fort Wayne, Indiana, shared that local authorities may not understand the capabilities of a surgery center and the role it can play in an emergency. So Haddix recommends being prepared to discuss your ASC's capabilities and resources it can offer during any and all meetings with your local authorities. And if faced with a public health emergency, Southwest Surgical Suites is prepared to transform into a dispensing site to assist with countermeasures and dispensing. So this definitely reminds me of that famous JFK quote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, except swap in communities and surgery centers. And that is the essence of this article. So thanks to ASCA for the helpful reminders and tips. And to end our new segment on a positive note, a groundbreaking surgery gave a woman her voice back. Shirley has not been able to speak easily for over a decade, and recently her doctors diagnosed her with spasmatic dysphonia, a voice disorder that causes involuntary spasms of the muscles in the larynx. A doctor in Tel Aviv brought promising news when she shared that doctors in Japan developed an innovative surgical treatment involving taking fat from the abdomen and inserting it into the vocal fold to prevent spasms. Shirley was so excited, she didn't question it for a second, and she became the first person in Israel to undergo the surgery. And as soon as she woke up, she was able to talk again. She said, I feel like I've been reborn and no one is stopping me from speaking now. So another really cool story about surgeons all over the world changing lives. And that news story officially wraps up this week's podcast. Thank you, as always, for spending a few minutes of your week with us. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review on whichever platform you're listening from. I hope you have a great day, and we will see you again next week.